Welcome to another episode of A Year with Jesus. I'm Philip. And I'm Bill. This week, we're in Matthew chapter 26 and Matthew chapter 27. Bill, Matthew has recorded the story of the life of Christ. And if we thought he was giving us a lot of details on the last week of his life, in chapter 26 and chapter 27, we get a lot of details about about the last, what, 36 hours? Yeah, so much information there. And, And again, Jesus knows everything that's about to happen, but... I think you were mentioning right before we started just how much uh, page flipping we're going to have to be doing here. Yes, there's so much information here. So I think that a really useful way for us to think about these chapters is to begin to consider the contrast, because Matthew has lined up a lot of things thematically, hasn't Mm -hmm. he? Yeah, so we know in verse 2, he says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered over for crucifixion. But then the story immediately afterwards seems to be something that actually happened about three or four days ago. And so Matthew, it seems like he's thematically setting things up so that we can see the contrast, for example, between Mary and Judas. And like you said, throughout 26, we'll see multiple contrasts that Matthew's hoping for us to see. But but one thing that Matthew wants us to see is that in spite of... Welcome to another episode of A Year with Jesus. I'm Philip. And I'm Bill. This week, we're in Matthew chapter 26 and Matthew chapter 27. Bill... Matthew has recorded the story of the life of Yes, we can have confidence in that plan. So as you look at the first contrast between Mary and Judas, it seems to be a contrast of generosity and greed, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, so Mary comes and she, she I mean, takes this alabaster jar that was very costly, the text tells us, and she pours the whole thing. And I love, I love what the disciples say versus what Jesus says, because they say, why this waste? They're indignant with her. You're wasting all this money. When really Judas especially was concerned about how he could have used the money. But Jesus' answer is, you will always have the poor with me. Here's another contrast. You'll always have the poor. You will not always have me. And so she did the right thing. Yes, she does. And ultimately, what seems on the outside is just a financial decision, contrasting Judas greed, is actually a faith issue, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That she's the only one. I mean, we've read three different times that Matthew recorded for us. Jesus has spoken about his coming execution. She's the only one that says, oh, well, if that's happening, then you're worthy of this. I mean, mm-hmm. if we put this in today's dollars, that little vial of perfume is worth at least $30,000. Unbelievable. She's bringing her very best. She's like, if you're leaving, and this is my last chance to show you how much I trust you and love you, then here, you're worthy of this. And yet Judas, it's so heartbreaking. Judas turns around and betrays Christ in the face of Mary's great faith. Again, you see just a difference in, in the spirit there. Judas, I mean, Judas goes, first of all, he goes to the chief priest. Mary's going to Jesus. And Judas says, what are you willing to give me? Right. While Mary's thinking about what she can give to Jesus, Judas is looking to deliver him to them. And Mary's looking to give everything that she has to come to him. And again, just just the, the difference. And he's thinking about, you know, this could have been used for the poor. This would have been a good opportunity to serve people. And here, Judas is thinking about the opportunity to betray Jesus. And again, they were both around Jesus. Judas and Mary were both around Jesus. And you just see what greed does to the heart of a person. Excellent. It corrodes not just their, um, you know, not just their daily lifestyle, but it corrodes their faith. Mm-hmm. And it blinds them to who is right in front of them. It's something we have to watch out for. Okay, well, if Judas has this on his mind, Jesus, again, has something very different. Je- Jesus is thinking about the Passover, observing the Passover with his disciples, but he's ultimately thinking about how he is the superior lamb. Yeah, and so he does this. We have this contrast between the Passover meal 
and the Lord's Supper that he seems to, that, that he's seeking to institute. But again, even in that, he's letting them know, truly, I say to you, one of you is going to betray me. He knows what's going to happen. You know, and if Jesus had mentioned that Judas was the betrayer, say a year ahead of time, think of how the other apostles would have treated him. Mm-hmm. They would have just, you know, made his life miserable. But if Jesus had never mentioned that Judas was the betrayer, it would have almost seemed like Judas surprised Christ. Yeah. But because Jesus has perfect timing, he identifies Judas right here at the end so that no one can doubt he knew what was going to go on and so that it gave Judas every opportunity. I I think that's exactly what it is. I mean, especially with that every opportunity, I wonder if even as Jesus is talking to Judas here, there's love for him. Yes. If there's a desire for repentance, you know, we know in other situations, I think about the story of Achan in, in the book of Joshua, where Achan is told to repent, but he's told to repent after he's already committed the sin. Adam and Eve have already committed the sin. Judas, he's going to, he hasn't yet. He's going to. And Jesus has been giving him warnings. This is going to happen. You're going to do this. And then even in verse 25, and I believe that this would have been a conversation that Jesus and Judas would have had that the disciples wouldn't have been privy to. But he says, I'm assuming like the other disciples were all asking, we know, right? Uh, surely not I, rabbi. And Jesus said to him, you yourself said it. I mean, I just, you just assumed this would wake him up. This would be the, I, I need to stop. Something's got to change. But Jesus is letting him know and just how how apropos during the Passover meal, you know, that the, the, you would have killed that lamb so that the nation would be spared. This is this is what Judas is doing. Well, and it's another connection between these two chapters, with both chapter 26 and chapter 27. Mm. Jesus is often going to reply, it's what you have said. It's what you have said. It's what you have said. Because people have made a choice at this point yeah. on whether or not they love and trust Christ as the Son of God. That's right. And so he's not being taken off guard. And so as he do, so while they were eating the supper, then he institutes another supper, this Lord's Supper that we partake of every every first day of the week. And he says, take and eat, this is my body. I think this is a small point that's worth mentioning. I think oftentimes whenever people, uh, some people partake of the Lord's Supper and they think that we're literally eating his body, that we're literally drinking his blood, it'd be kind of difficult to do for them to do in that moment while he's in in body with right. them, in, you know, incarnate with them. And so I don't think he's literally saying, eat, you're eating my actual literal flesh, but it's a representation for this new covenant that they were going to be entering with him. And to help identify what he's been teaching them all along, right, that he is the source of life mm-hmm. and that he is the one that is to be focused on. And remembered, like we said last week in the podcast about him, the king is the center of his kingdom. And here he is the center of this memorial. And these two elements there are to help us to remember that he actually did come in the flesh, he left the glory of heaven, and that then he gave that fleshly body yeah. in the highest sacrifice, spilling his own blood to take our sins away. And, and again, that spilling his own blood would have been, I believe, in part, the start of the new covenant. And so then as he continues, he, he lets us know, again, he's outlining everything that's going to happen. And I know I keep saying it, because Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He yes. says, you guys, you're going to fall away. All of you are going to fall away. But after I've been raised and there's this restoration, he's letting them know, I will go ahead of you in Galilee. He, and Peter's like, I would never fall away. And Jesus is like, Peter, tonight, you're going to betray me three times. And Peter, again, he's too headstrong. He's unwilling to listen to what Jesus has to say, which maybe there's a point for us in that. And sometimes we can get a little hard-headed and stubborn. And well, God, even if this applies to everybody else, we're different. I'm different. I would never do that. I would never leave you. I would never fall away. If Peter, who was with Jesus for three years and saw the miracles and did miracles, 
If he fell away for a point in time, we need to not be so arrogant as to think that this would never happen to us. That's right. And so we get then we get the next contrast in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what's the contrast this time, Philip? Well, this time Jesus, of course, is asking his apostles, his closest core, right, to come with him and to pray. And while he's praying and while he's laying his heart out to the will of the Father, his disciples are sleeping. Mm. And not just all the 12, but literally his three closest friends. We see in verse 37, his inner circle, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. He was grieved and distressed. He told them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And yet they are weak. And so he looks at them with mercy. He says, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he turns around and he comes back to pray again to the father, not my will, but thine be done. And, you know, I think sometimes we think the disciples, they get to Gethsemane, and they're just kind of like lackadaisical. They don't care about what's happening. We know in verse 22, they were deeply grieved earlier that night. Yep. Yeah, I'm assuming they're also deeply grieved, but like you're saying, sleep overtakes them, and they end up just falling asleep here. And and then Jesus is like, okay, let's go. You know, the one who betrays me is at hand, and you just imagine the disciples are like, who's going to betray you? Who is it? And here comes Judas. And here comes Judas. And, you know— a kiss on the cheek was a very customary greeting at that time. But to use the greeting of a friend mm-hmm. to turn it into the greeting of a betrayer is just so heartbreaking here. As Judas throws away everything that Christ would bless him with, all over 30 pieces of silver. And we have to make sure we don't throw away God's great blessings in our life over silly material things. Amen. Amen. And again, and Jesus knows, again, I'm saying, Friend, do what you came here for. He knows what he knows what's happening. And Peter, you know, the text doesn't explicitly say that it's Peter, but we know that it's Peter in seeking to, to save Jesus, stretches out his sword and, and cuts off his ear. And I wonder if some, you know, and Jesus is like, that's not the way you're gonna save me here. This right. is not the rescuing that I need. And again, I wonder if there's a lesson for us there that like the way that God wants us to do his will is the way that he has commanded us to do his will, that we don't need to seek to save God via extracurricular means. We don't need to seek to save God or to save the gospel or to save the kingdom by doing things that are fleshly, by doing things of the sword. That's right, of a very worldly way. It's such a huge contrast between the the calm acceptance and the calm sacrifice of Christ versus the very passionate but misdirected enthusiasm of Peter here. And so Jesus allows himself to be arrested. I mean, and the disciples all flee, just like he said that they would. And he's led away, and he's led away into Caiaphas. And and I love this because Mark, I mean, Matthew especially lets us know that Peter's following. He's following at a distance. He's trying to see what's going on. And you kind of get this contrast now between Peter and Jesus. Peter, while he's being asked some questions by kind of slaves, and Jesus, while he's being tried by the high priest, and and what what stands out to you about the contrast between Peter and Jesus here in this in this text? Right at the end of Matthew chapter twenty six, finally the priest just puts it to Jesus directly. I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Mm-hmm. And just like he told Judas, it's what you said. Jesus now answers in verse sixty four. You've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus goes all the way back to that amazing phrase from the book of Daniel to identify himself as the Son of Man, the appointed Messiah. Mm -hmm. And they absolutely understood the significance of his answer. And again, you you think about the difference between Jesus' answer 
and Peter's answer when, when they were, you know, asking him all these questions and they ask, you two are with Jesus the Galilean and he denies it and says, I do not know what you're talking about. Well, Jesus, if Jesus wanted to save his own neck, he could have said, I do not know what you're talking about. He could have said, I do not know. I do not know, but he doesn't do any of that. But Peter does. And you see the contrast yep. between Peter who's trying to save himself, who's thinking about the flesh and Jesus who's thinking about the will of the father and is so sad. Because Peter begins to curse and swear. I believe he's swearing by God that he does not know God's son and just how sad this whole moment is. And then the rooster crows and he weeps bitterly. Right. And so we start to see his remorse then contrasted to the remorse of Judas. Into chapter 27, yeah. That's right. And I always I always want to remind people that we do have hard times. We have moments where we've disappointed others and moments where we're deeply deeply disappointed in ourselves. But how we handle that is really important. And so we see that Peter has some very godly sorrow where he thinks, you know what, never again. Yeah, he, he goes and he cries out bitterly. We'll see later on that he's with the other disciples, that he's... It, but Judas, I mean, like, I always think he betrays him. He felt remorse. He returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. But then he confesses to them and says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They don't care about any of that. And instead of going maybe back to the apostles, instead of trying to find Jesus, instead of doing any of that, he goes and he decides to take his life. And I, I think for a lot of people, that ends up being the easy way out, whether it's a, you know something physical that sometimes, unfortunately, people do, but even spiritually. People rather just walk away than ever have to come back and, and really confront their mistakes and confront their sins, because that's that's so hard to do. Right. And so we need to know that just like Jesus welcomed Peter back and reaffirmed his love for him and gave Peter the chance to re-express and affirm his love for the Lord, we always have that chance. And if Judas had waited, if Judas had waited just a few days, he would have seen the total transformation of the situation. Mm -hmm. And I think when we get in our darkest days, when we have the most despair, we need to know that God is the anchor of our hope and that he can totally turn things around in ways we could not possibly fully appreciate or anticipate. So we need to go to the right sources, right? And Amen. Peter did that. Peter went to the right sources, and whether it's physically or spiritually. We've got to do that as well. And so and so, we go back to Jesus, because that's how the text continues. And now Jesus is before Pilate after he's with Caiaphas. Now he's before Pilate. And I think even continuing maybe a little bit with the comparisons, now you have Jesus versus Barabbas, and who are the people going to choose? But you know, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, just like you've said, like he said to Caiaphas, like he said to Judas, you yourself have said it. These people, they know the answers. Yes, they know. They deep, know. They, deep down inside, they know what these answers are. And Jesus, if again, I, do you not hear the things that they testify against you? If Jesus wanted out, he could have spoken up for himself. And he only speaks when it's to fulfill God's word and to, to move God's will along. And he's silent whenever he might say anything that might be detrimental towards that. Yes, so then... You know, Pilate goes back and forth of this exchange, and ultimately Barabbas is released, and the crowds call out for Christ to be crucified. Yeah, Bar Barabbas is this notorious prisoner. Just think, the text says he's a notorious prisoner. Uh, he's just this, this awful guy, and this is who the people want. And what we see is that we can make the same kind of bad choices. Mm. We can choose the evil and the corrupt things of this world rather than choosing the very Son of God. When they cry out, crucify him, crucify him, the narrative starts to tell us about the way Jesus is going to give his life. I mean, the whole book has been building up to this. And if you've been following along in the podcast this year, you know who Jesus is at mm -hmm. this point. 
You know that he's the one that controls the winds and the waves. You know that he's the one that has multiplied the loaves and the fish. You know that he's the one that has spoken about the true spiritual kingdom of the Father. That Lord and Savior is going to give his life. And the emphasis in Matthew and the rest of the Gospels is not on the gory details. It's on the identity of our Amen. Savior. Amen. And, and again, Pilate knew better. And I, and I wonder if part of what's happening here is you're almost having Pilate, it's Pilate, because he knows that Jesus is innocent. He's almost, I even wonder if there were other prisoners. We know, because there were two other prisoners who were crucified That's with right. Jesus. I wonder if Pilate tried to present the worst possible person so that Jesus would be freed. His wife comes to him and she says, this is a righteous man. And so Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. Pilate knew, I'm assuming, had at least ideas of who Jesus possibly was. And at the end of the day, he was just unwilling, out of fear, out of a desire to keep his position, whatever it was, he was unwilling to do what was right. And like you're saying, I wonder if oftentimes we struggle with the same decision. We know what's true. We know who Jesus actually is. And there's just a challenge to do what's right and to stand by Jesus and let go of anything and everybody else. So then Matthew tells us in the face of all the mocking, in face of all the scourging, that there actually was one guy that was pulled in to be beside Jesus. Down in verse 32, they pressed into service a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom had to bear his cross. Mm. And although this would have been a terrible experience for Simon, it's a reminder that each one of us should choose to be side by side with our Lord, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him. And in a very literal way, Simon has to do that at this moment. Mm. I, I, I love that, that idea there. So then they come up to this place called Golgotha that is just the place of the skull. I mean, the Calvary is the Latin name for it. And it seems like it was that place that was a little bit up on a hill and it looked like a skull. People could have seen it from, from a distance. And again, like this is, they just would have crucified people there. And they take Jesus and they crucify him. And they take his garment. And I mean, I'm assuming he would have been stripped naked. They take his garments away. They're casting, like they, the, the soldiers care more about the lots that are being cast. The people are treating it like a great spectacle. While Jesus, the Son of God, the King of the Jews, is being crucified in the moment there. And we even know from the record here that there was a sign posted to identify Jesus as the King of the Jews. And although that may have been meant as an accusation, it's actually a declaration mm -hmm. of what's happening here. And then these miracles begin to unfold because Matthew is showing to us in verse 45, the sixth hour, and then verse 46, the ninth hour, as Christ calls out and identifies by quoting from Psalm 22 that he is fulfilling the role of the suffering servant, right? He's doing all these things that both the Psalms and Isaiah have talked about, and now there are miracles that grab the attention mm -hmm. of everyone assembled. Yeah, he, he cries out again. I even think at, in, even in his death in verse 50, which I think verse 45, the darkness coming on the land is probably God protecting Jesus in some ways from the whole maybe humiliation of people seeing his nakedness. But in verse 50, he yields up his spirit. He's in control of what's happening here. The veil of the temple is torn up in two. It's not going to be the temple anymore. But the tombs open and many of the bodies who were of the saints who were asleep were raised. And I wonder if this is supposed to be an allusion to 2 Kings 13 when Elisha dies and, and, and people are bringing bodies to his grave and that whenever right. the dead bodies touch the grave, even they come to life. How much more so with Jesus, the Son of God, the real and true Elisha? At Jesus' death, people come to life. But then we'll see a little bit later on at his resurrection, the life that's now offered, not just to those saints then, but to saints of all times, of all places, for forever. 
And so here's a king, a king that is the source of life, and yet his disciples have all fallen away. They've run, they've fled, but there were women, women that cannot be overlooked, women like Mary that anointed him because they had great faith. They believed in his identity. There are women here in verse 55 and verse 56, I think standing at a respectful distance, Mm -hmm. but they are there so that he is not alone. And Matthew stops to honor those women. And we need to remember the great influence of godly women and the kind of support and dedication and devotion that is celebrated in women of faith like this. Amen, amen. And and just see how also, how the crucifixion, in theory, it, it should bring out, maybe if, if there's parts of us where we're wanting to serve Jesus and we're kind of doing it at a distance or we're doing it kind of secretly. Look at Joseph of Arimathea and what happens to him. It's we awesome. know that he's a disciple and he's serving God secretly, it seems like. And at Jesus' death, he just does not care. He just takes it up a notch. He steps it up and he's like, no, Jesus was the son of God. I need to, and he just takes his body. He puts it in his own tomb. Uh, and, and, and then they close the tomb up. That's right. And so the Pharisees begin to put two and two together. What they think of as a victory is suddenly a threat. Mm -hmm. They're like, wait a minute. We remember, right? We remember what was being said here. And so at the end of Matthew chapter 27, orders are given. They say in verse 63, we remember that when he was still alive, he said, after three days, I'm to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away, say to the people that he has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. Bill, do you think they did that? Yeah, 100%. Of course they did. They're they're there um, seeking permission from Pilate to do that, and they absolutely doubled it down. What efforts did they put in place? Yeah, so you know that they have a stone there. They'll put like a a seal. There'll be guards that are there to cover up the stone. And, and it, it doesn't matter because a stone, a seal, a grave, none of that is going to be able to hold the Son of God. And we'll see that next week. That's right. So these two chapters really work together to focus us on Christ. We have a series of contrasts here that help us make better choices in our life. And we have a record of his humble death that makes us take that step forward like Joseph did. That's right. And and again, to see that Jesus, he was in control the whole time. He was not a victim of the crucifixion. He willingly gave himself up to help us understand the magnitude of the love that he has for us and the seriousness of sin for us to appreciate, again, just all of that and appreciate God's love for us. I hope you've been reading along with us. If these chapters are ones you haven't read in a while, please go back and give yourself the blessing of reading Matthew 26 and Matthew chapter 27. It'll set you up to really enjoy the finale in chapter 28 when we pick up next week. Thank you for being part of the podcast. If you want the full reading schedule, visit us at embryhills.com slash podcast.